Well, good morning, everyone. How are you guys? Great. You look good. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us online. It's great to be with you. It is a fun day. It is a good day today. It is Live Your Purpose Weekend. Now, you might be here and you're thinking, gosh, that sounds cool. <laughs> but what does that mean, right? What does it mean to live your purpose? I think about those um, late night skits, those comedy shows where they go out into the streets and they ask random people questions just to hear what they would say. And I wonder if we went out like that and asked random people on the street, hey, what's your purpose? What do you think that they would say? The answers might be really, really different across the board. We might hear, my purpose is to be happy. My purpose is to be successful, to make a difference to be a good mom, or to provide for my family. Maybe it's to fall in love, or be a professional athlete, or a good neighbor. Or maybe the vulnerable answer would be, I don't know. I don't know. The response to this question could land all over the place. What's your purpose? Maybe that question haunts you. It's like asking a senior in high school or college what they're doing after they graduate. They hate that question. <laughs> or asking someone who lost their job recently what's next. Because it can be overwhelming not to know. Because we want to know, right? And if we don't, well, it's stressful. Probably change the subject. There's this belief that I have felt and I've heard from many people that maybe God put us on this earth for one specific thing. It's as if we have one specific lane, one city, one job one future spouse, for those of you who are dating, um, and there's this real fear that we might miss it. We might miss his will for us, that so we could get off track and we could mess the whole thing up. Maybe you felt this. I know I felt this, especially around big decisions. I remember wrestling around, gosh, where do I go to school? Should I date and marry that long-haired southern boy? <laughs> Should we take that job that moves us across the country? Do we buy or sell this house? I've had plenty of moments where discerning the will of God felt tricky or weighty. Now, this is really getting at something we see all throughout Scripture, and that's calling. Maybe you've heard people describe the moment God called them, that he called them to missions, uh, to ministry, to adopt, or something big and flashy. Now, I've seen the specific calling of God, no doubt, the Holy Spirit totally calls us to specific things. I've known people called to each of those things I just mentioned, where the call of God is obvious, it's clear, it's unquestionable. And that might be your story. How powerful if that's your story. And if it's not your story, the danger of this is sometimes we think God calling us needs to look like that. Big, flashy, like lights on our feet, right? Or the audible voice of God. And if we haven't heard or felt or experienced something like that, something clear, unquestionable, and direct, well, what do we do with that, right? What's your purpose? Big haunting question coming at you this morning, huh? Our purpose, scripture has a lot to say about it, and I wanna explore that with you 
a bit. So if you are following along on our app or have an outline or you're just taking notes, the first point is our design from the beginning is to image God. To image God. What does that mean? In the very beginning, we see in the first pages of Genesis, the triune God breathed life. Where there's nothing, God created form. Where there was darkness, God brought light. God orchestrated the waters and the land, and it was good. Then trees, plants, vegetation, it was good. Then animals, birds, fish, and it was good. Then it says this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It's all good. When it comes to mankind, it was very good. You know, fun fact about me, I'm a visual artist. I'm a painter. I studied visual art at CSU. I can totally nerd out about it. If any of you share that, we could do that together later. But I remember I had a professor in art school one time that says, your art says something about you. So what are you saying? Your art says something about you. So what are you saying? It was a profound question that still rattles around in my brain and exists far beyond even that lane of art. I remember when my professor asked it, I immediately thought of God. What do we, his creation, say of him? In Ephesians 2.10, in the New Living Translation, it says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We talked about this verse uh, several weeks ago when Pastor and Dr. Foth shared about God, the maker. Our creative God was first an artist before he was a lecturer. How beautiful. We are designed in the image and likeness of our maker, a masterpiece with purpose. To be his image bearers or imagers, if I could use that word, is to be his representatives in the world. That was his intent at the beginning. The watching world seeking to know what God is like, we are to image this. We are his imagers and representatives. There was this kind of what is my purpose question that was posed to Jesus by some religious leaders who were regularly trying to put Jesus in a theology pickle. Right? You know, he was making them really uncomfortable with his teaching. He was ruffling a lot of feathers. <laughs> Let's just say that. And in Matthew 22, this is what it says. Hearing that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This question is really like asking, um, what's the summary? Boil it all down. Give me the elevator pitch of the point of all this. What's our purpose? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In the land of law and rules, Jesus boils them down to love God and love others. 
So we are his image bearers, his representatives, charged to love God and love others. Seems pretty simple, actually. Hard, definitely, but simple. It's love. Do you think God is using you to image him or to represent him? Do you think God wants to use you? Thankfully, and the next point in the outline, is God chooses and uses unlikely people. God chooses and uses unlikely people. Throughout all of scripture, we find a host of misfits. (laughs) People who God used mightily, despite their insecurities, their doubts, their fragility, their pain, their pride. You'd think going to scripture, you'd find characters you want to look like, right? emulate, (laughs) but most of them were a mess, and they weren't cleaned up. They're not positioned to make them look better. Instead, the fullness of their humanity and brokenness is displayed, on display, in our Bible. God used quite the variety of misfits throughout history, and this is comforting, right? How comforting for us. He's gracious. When we see Jesus hit the scene, And we see who he chooses to be his closest people. (laughs) He chose fishermen, tax collectors, a zealot. He had women following him. He had a ragtag group of rough people who, by the way, would have hated each other. A zealot and a tax collector could not be further apart. And yet they are seen, chosen, invited by Jesus to follow him alongside each other. It's almost unbelievable. You know, Pastor Derry's sermon last week, he touched on this, about the idea of tax collectors and what they were really known for. (laughs) I highly recommend going back and listening to revisit if you haven't had a chance yet to listen. But Jesus' action is radical, culturally um, unacceptable, even inappropriate, that all these people would be together. That's who he chooses. Now, one of my favorites of the ragtag disciples Jesus chose is Peter. (laughs) Peter is impulsive. He's hot-tempered. He's a terrible counselor, (laughs) quick to speak, slow to listen. He was a terrible soldier. He cuts off the ear of the Roman soldier when Jesus is betrayed, which Jesus rebukes Peter. He restores the ear of the soldier. (laughs) Peter regularly gets it wrong. Bless his heart. Today, I want to follow Peter a bit. I want to come back to him in a minute. But here's what we know without a shadow of a doubt. God loves to use weak people. God loves to use weak people. And maybe that's offensive to you. We, the average American or Westerner, we really don't love to feel, um, appear, be told that we are weak. If anything, many of us lean hard into the fake it till you make it space, right? So then, when you offer yourself before God to be used, to serve, to live your purpose, you might hear a chorus of doubters, especially your own self-talk. That you don't know enough, you don't believe enough, you're too old, you're too young, you haven't been faithful enough, you aren't good enough, or whatever enoughs you hear. God has a different perspective 
on your weakness. God has never been impressed with strength or self-sufficiency. In fact, he's drawn to people who are weak and admit it. Poor in spirit is considered blessed from the mouth of Jesus in the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whatever your inner dialogue is, God loves to use weak people who admit their weakness and offer themselves to God anyway. God is never limited by our limitations. Amen? As the great missionary Hudson Taylor said, all God's giants are weak people. So Jesus calls the rough and tough and can somehow make something beautiful out of us, weakness and all. Next point is his invitation for us is to follow him, to serve. To follow him, to serve. Looking back through the life of Jesus, we see over and over again his calling and invitation to the host of unlikely people was to follow him. That invitation to follow was a modeling life after him. It was an entire life apprenticeship. Disciples would follow every step of their rabbi, which we're still invited to do today. I want to look again at Jesus and his interaction with his closest friends and disciples near the end of his life on earth, giving a symbolic picture of servanthood in John chapter 13. He's having his last supper, the Passover meal. The meal had started, and this is where it takes off in verse 3. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. They did come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus' action here was unprecedented. In this culture, foot washing was a servant's task. It was a necessary one, but it was always for the lowest ranking person to do. Foot washing was normally carried out by the servant, not by anyone participating in the meal, and certainly not by the one presiding over the meal, which in this case was Jesus. So it seems there was no servant at the venue for this meal. We can imagine it, right? The moment of embarrassment as the disciples realize there's no one available to do the foot washing. Like, uh-oh, my bad. But none of them are prepared to do it. The shock of the disciples would have been palpable as they realized Jesus was preparing himself to do this lowly service. Still, none of them moved. They just sat there, probably in shocked silence, as Jesus washed and dried one disciple's feet after the next, after the next. And then the silence is broken when they come to Peter. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter realized what Jesus was doing on one level, but he didn't understand what it symbolized. So he objects. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter was appalled to think that Jesus would do this. He virtually forbid it. And then when Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Oof, that's a strong statement from Jesus. It makes no sense if all that's involved here 
is foot washing. The meaning is something deeper. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Gotta love Peter, right? When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. It's never just about washing feet. The washing of the feet was the picture of servanthood. Jesus emptied himself. In verse 3, John says that Jesus knew whose he was. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. He knew whose he was. He knew where he was going. He had nothing to prove, nothing to earn, nothing to lose. And because of this, he served. He invites us to do the same, that we might know whose image we bear, whose we are. And out of that, we serve. In Philippians 2, it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Multiple times throughout the Gospels, we see this measuring of greatness. Disciples wanted to be seated next to Jesus in glory. They wanted a ranking. They wanted significance. And Jesus flips the whole thing upside down. When the disciples want to know who's the greatest among them, it says they're arguing about it in front of Jesus. Bless them, right? Jesus then brings a little kid, a child, front and center and says, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then again later, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, the servant of all. The only leadership recognized by Jesus is servant leadership. In our world of measuring greatness by followers or influence, appearance, money, or status, Jesus flips the whole thing on its head, and he invites us to measure greatness by servanthood and humility. So what does a servant look like? What does a servant look like? We aren't living in the days of foot washing today. It's not the common need of the people, like it was in the first century, but there are certainly other needs. So what does it look like to carry the heart of Jesus and his mantle of servanthood today? What comes to your mind when you think of serving? Maybe it's pulling your pregnant neighbor's weeds. Nobody likes pulling weeds, right? Or it's appreciating your kid's worn out teacher. Stepping in to be a volunteer firefighter, maybe dropping sandbags for a flood. Listening to the homeless friend you pass every day on the way to the office. Or picking up trash on your favorite walkway. It might be inviting the international student or that international family to your house for dinner to hear about their culture and their customs or taking meals to the family in crisis from your carpool. Now, I grew up in Littleton, 
I started my relationship with Jesus in the fourth grade, but really started pursuing my faith intentionally in high school. I remember when I got my license, I started driving myself to church, <laughs> looking for places to serve. I had attended a Tuesday night church in that season, and one week they shared that they needed people to be on their greeting and cleanup teams. So I was in. Here I am. I'm here. Let's go. I was the youngest person by at least 10 years. They all joked about it regularly. But I felt like I was a part of my church, handing out bulletins and then wearing the vacuum backpack to vacuum the auditorium after service. Then I worked at a Christian summer camp for kids in the summers of high school. I did dishes, I uh, cooked meals, I set up meals, I tore down all the things, every meal. Um, it's not glamorous or luxurious by any stretch. I learned how to peel a potato and use a commercial dishwasher, right? But God met me so powerfully in those years, serving sacrificially and doing it alongside people who were living out their faith in a way that was so real. It was so attractive to me. I was always drawn to community like that. And then I got involved in middle school ministry, started spending time with middle school kids. It was simple things, really, ice cream, you know, frappuccinos, walks at the park or at the mall. <laughs> I had no idea what it meant to be a mentor. And I felt like I didn't know what I was doing because I didn't. And man, getting rejected by a middle school kid really humbles you like nothing else. It was scary. <laughs> felt way in over my head. But I got to watch God move in the life of some middle school and later high school kids. I got to watch them come to faith. I got to watch their lives be transformed, and it blew my mind. Changed my life. I've had so many moments where God has met me, where he has moved through me despite me, where he broke down the box that I kept him in, and serving has always been a catalyst for me. So what's your story? What comes to mind for you when you think of serving? It's love. Again, Jesus describes this for us. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. It was 20 years ago, yesterday, when the world stood in shock and confusion when two planes hit the World Trade Center in New York City and then one hit the Pentagon. It's become a marker in time for many of us those of us old enough to remember where we were. We remember the day, the shock, the smoke, the fear, and the grief. 20 years ago. I was in the eighth grade. I watched it all from the small kitchen TV on our counter while I ate my cereal before walking to school. I didn't understand the magnitude of it. Luckily, my parents were wise not to let me consume too much news, but I knew it was big. I had the privilege to visit the memorial and the museum in New York City in 2018 um, to relive and relearn as an adult what I couldn't comprehend at 13. It's a beautiful, sobering tribute to those we lost that day. But I think of the quote by Mr. Rogers. He said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. 
When the masses are running away, there are firefighters, medical workers, police officers, and everyday people running toward disaster, seeing need and crisis stepping in despite the threat of their own demise. We must not forget them. We remember the day and we honor them now. The servant-hearted heroes who saw a need and ran toward it. What a picture of servanthood, right? Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. For those of you who serve our community as first responders in law enforcement and healthcare, firefighters, thank you for the work that you do. Where it is thankless, where it is costly, where it goes unseen, thank you. Real servants make themselves available. Real servants pay attention to need. They are willing. They are active. So I have some questions for us, for us to ponder this week, to genuinely spend some time and pray over these. If you're a journaler, I'm a big journaler. It's really helpful for me. This might be a good topic to journal through and pray over. But here's some questions I want you to consider. The first, are we willing to serve? Are we willing? Willingness plays a pretty key part in serving. We have to be willing to make time, um, willing to step out of our comfort zone, and then willing to act on the invitations, the whispers, the nudges from God. You remember what I said earlier about that belief that many people have about purpose, like maybe God has very specific things I'm supposed to do, like we might just have one thing and I could mess it up. I believed that before. And in those moments, my heart toward God was usually fearful and paralyzed. Pastor Jeff, when sharing about discerning the will of God, he says often we view the will of God like a tightrope we could fall off of, when in actuality it's a field to play in. I love that. If we view the invitations of God as a field to play in, we can jump around. We can try things. We can risk some stuff. We don't have to sit paralyzed waiting for the perfect or best opportunities. We can move. We can say yes and start walking, right? Because God is looking for willing volunteers to say, here I am. Send me. I'll go. I'll do it. Are we willing? The second question is, what is my ministry right now? What's my ministry right now? And this question might freak you out, right? Ministry. That can feel like a big word, right? It's for religious people or professional clergy, maybe overseas missionaries. But in the Bible, the word for servant and minister are synonymous as our service and ministry. Actually, biblically, the role of pastors is to equip the believers for the work of ministry. That's those of you who are following the practices and way of Jesus. So the belief that ministry is only done by the church staff, by the paid Christians, right? It's not biblical. It's not. So what does your serving or ministry look like right now? Some of you could believe the lie that if it doesn't happen in the church walls, have the church name, 
or be endorsed as serving um, by the church, then it doesn't count. (laughs) You might feel like sinking into your chair because you haven't served or you haven't gotten involved the ways you wanted to for various reasons. But I need you to hear our heart for you. The ways you serve your ministry does not have to be in these walls to count. Maybe your ministry right now, it's clear. You're caring for your elderly parents. You're fostering a couple kiddos. You're neighboring really intentionally. Maybe you're using your time to invest in or open doors for that young leader in your business who wants to be like you someday. Maybe you're starting a Bible study with your classmates or you're homeschooling your kids or you're tutoring or you're coaching or you're grandparenting really intentionally. I need you to hear that your church affirms that work as ministry. It does not need to be in these walls to count. Maybe you're in a season when you thought you knew what your purpose was and it's a time of dreaming. It's a time of doing something different. Maybe that's you. Maybe you don't have a place, actually, right now. Maybe you feel a stirring of the Holy Spirit, or you're feeling something, right? A nudge to raise your hand, to step into something more intentionally. In that case, we do have opportunities for you to consider, like a wide, wide lane to run in, to find a place to serve in this season. You know, Pastor Brent mentioned this, but we have volunteers called ministry guides. Their whole goal is just to connect with you learn your story, um, hear what you're passionate about, what gifts you have, and then connect you to ministry you might not even know exists right now. Maybe that is your next step. But God doesn't need us. He chooses to use us, to partner with us in the work of his kingdom. He allows us to watch his tangible movement in our world in the lives of people he calls back to himself. He is faithful to work in you and through you. And serving will be your best gift. Seeing God's tangible presence and power in our world, in our lives, it's the best. We're a part of something so much bigger than just us. So, your purpose to represent him to love, to serve. God loves to use weak people, you and me. He's not limited by our limitations. Yeah. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you come to us, that you loved us first, that you delight in us, that we are called beloved of you. Thank you for your grace. We are moved by it. And even now, we just say, here I am. Here I am. God, I ask right now that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you might be saying, what you might be inviting us into. We open our hands and our heart for that. Would you give us a vision that we can't possibly have without you? God, I pray you would silence the enemy especially the ones of the self-talk in our own minds. God, would you give us courage to step out or step in? God, we are fragile. We are fearful. We don't know enough. We don't have enough faith or wisdom, but you do. So we look to you. 
God, I pray for each of us in this room that you would reveal what is the field we could play in. I pray for that, God, for the field to play in. God, and we pray we would see your tangible movement in our world, in our nation, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our families. God, we want to see your movement in the land of the living. And so we ask for that, God. Would you use us? Here we are. Thank you that you are good and that you use weak people like us. We love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen.